0: Between the animals and the insects. The two squads had gathered together on the gridiron for a real grudge match. Dressing out for the animals was the elephant, the lion, the tiger, the bear. Suiting up for the insects was the firefly and flea and gnat and butterfly. Well, you can imagine the outcome of the contest. The animals were dominating. I mean, every time the elephant got the ball, he ran 40-50 yards. The lion would sweep around the end for touchdown after touchdown. The defense for the insects was as weak as a flea, and the offense was no better. In fact, every time the yellow jacket dropped back to pass, the bulldog would sack him. Oh, I just, oh my. Oops, that just slipped out. I'm sorry. Well, the halftime score was an unbelievably pathetic, catch this, The animals 70, the insects zero. Well, the animals thought they had the game all locked up. But at the start of the second half, a new player entered the game for the insects, the centipede. He immediately began to dominate the action. He ran back the opening kickoff. He scored every time he carried the ball. No one could tackle the centipede. He ran and passed and blocked. He was just this incredible football player. On defense, every time the elephant swept around the end, the centipede would tackle him for a loss. This centipede dominated the second half. He led the insects to a come from behind dramatic victory. Animals 70, insects 77. Well, after the game, the elephant was kind of curious, you know. He, he came up to the flea and he asked him, he said, man, this centipede, he's quite a football player. Why didn't he play in the first half? The flea answered, Hey, it takes a centipede a whole half just to put on his shoes. (laughs) A centipede has so many legs, so many feet, he has lots and lots of shoes. You you get it? You get it? You get it? Well, as it turned out, the football playing centipede was one big, bad bug. Bug. And this was the situation facing the prophet Joel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The Jewish nation was facing a big, bad bug, not a centipede, but a plague of grasshopper-like locusts. In an age before pesticides, long before the Orkin man, a black cloud of locusts swept across the fertile fields outside Jerusalem, The plague killed the nation's crop. It crippled the nation's economy. And Joel was called by God to call a wayward nation back to him. Chapter 1 begins, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now this is all we know of the author. No mention of when he wrote, who he was, or what he did. All we know is Joel, the son of Pethuel. Joel means Yahweh is God, which is really the central theme in the prophecy. Pethuel means enlarged by God. And here's what you need to learn. When people understand that Yahweh is God, then the crisis situations in their life serve to enlarge their faith in him. Most conservative scholars place Joel in the reign of King Joash around 830 B.C., which would actually make Joel the first of the writing prophets. Joel spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah and was a contemporary of both the prophet Obadiah and the prophet Elisha. Well, Joel begins his prophecy. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? or even in the days of your fathers. Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the people of Judah had endured was a crisis of unprecedented proportions. For in verse four, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, The consuming locusts had eaten. Judah faced a terrible pestilence, a devastating plague of locusts, and they were to remind their children and their children's children of how God delivered them from this plague. In the mid-1990s, I was traveling to Nashville, Tennessee. I went to attend a pastor's conference, and while there, I witnessed an invasion of what the locals referred to as locusts. They were actually cicadas, but it was bizarre, man, I'm telling you. These little critters were everywhere. You'd be walking down the sidewalk, and they'd come up out of the grass and smack you in the face. We're talking real pests. Call them what you want, but they really bugged me. These Nashvilleians told me that the cicada phenomena occurred every 17 years. Well, it's interesting. Fast forward 17 years. I was watching a YouTube video the other day, dated 2011, which was 17 years later. Guess what? The cicadas struck again. I want you to hear the cicadas. This is in Nashville, May the 21st. Look at all them on the tree. They are all in the tree. As bothersome as these cicadas are, they are nothing in comparison to a swarm of locusts. The locust is a dull grasshopper, a dull yellow-colored grasshopper. Its length is about three inches long. Locusts have two antennae about one inch long themselves. Their face looks like the face of a horse, and they travel very fast. A swarm of locusts can reach as high as a 100 feet, and travel four to f- and be actually in length about four to five miles long. They move across the terrain and they strip the land of everything green. I mean, nothing gets spared. The locusts even eat the bark off trees and devour small branches. Locusts are nicknamed hunger incarnate. Swarms of locusts have been known to eat every blade of grass over 90 square miles. Imagine that. After a swarm sweeps over a spot, it looks like the land has been scorched. The four types of locusts mentioned by Joel probably refer to the four stages of a locust development. The chewing locusts are the babies. The swarming locusts are the mothers that multiply in great numbers. The crawling locusts still have wings that allow them to hop but not yet fly. That's why they're the crawling locusts. And the consuming locusts are the dive bombers. These are the adult locusts. These are the ones that do the most extensive damage. The December 1915 issue of National Geographic described a plague of locusts that covered both Israel and Syria for a total of five months long. It began in late February, and it didn't end until early July. The plague began with swarms so thick that they literally blanketed out the sunshine. The swarms unleashed on the land covered 400 to 600 feet a day. They consumed all traces of vegetation. And you see, this was the kind of crisis that was facing the nation Judah in the days of Joel. It had crippled the nation's economy. It had put their very survival at stake. This pestilence was a national emergency. This kind of plague would bug anybody. In the Chinese language, words are formed by linking together symbols. Take the word crisis, for example. It's the combination of symbols for two words, the word for danger and the word for opportunity. And you know a crisis is both. On the one hand, it poses danger. On the other hand, it creates opportunity. This plague was a wake-up call. It was an opportunity for Judah to learn what the name Joel meant. Yahweh is God, that he can be trusted even in tough times. Now, verse 5 lays out the only sin mentioned in this prophecy. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine for it has been cut off from your mouth. Now, apparently, idolatry was not the problem at the time of Joel that it would be later in the history of Judah. The big corruption in Joel's day was drunkenness. And 2,800 years later, in modern America, not much has changed. John Fielding referred to alcohol as the liquid fire By which men drink their hell beforehand, and if you've ever had close contact with the life of an alcoholic, you won't consider Fielding's description an exaggeration. Alcohol clouds our judgment; it impairs decision making; it lures normal inhibitions. Intoxication numbs certain feelings that God wants us to address and to deal with. And if you've ever tried to love an alcoholic, then you are painfully aware of how alcohol can ruin a relationship. It's been called hurt in a glass. Now, here's a provocative statement for you. I want you to think it through with me. Alcoholism is a disease, but drunkenness is a sin. Now, think that through with me. Realize not everyone who gets drunk is an alcoholic. Some folks binge drink. They just find a fun in getting smashed. They like the buzz. God doesn't want us under the control of anything but his spirit. Thus, if you like to get drunk, you should knock it off. A Christian is free to drink in moderation, but not to get drunk. Alcoholism though is more complicated. There's an old AA saying, once you're a pickle, You can never be a cucumber. In other words, some folks are chemically predisposed to alcohol. It's in their biological makeup. That means that once they start, they can't stop. It's a disease in the sense that they can't control it, but they can control the first drink. This is what an alcoholic has to realize. Once they start, they can't stop. That means that one drink becomes a drunk. That means for the alcoholic, he cannot participate even in that one drink. He needs to realize that Budweiser is not his bud. And it's not going to make him wiser. For an alcoholic, it is a sin to take a first drink. An alcoholic needs to stop, find help if necessary, dry out, and then commit to a comprehensive plan to avoid alcohol in the future. Well, Joel continues... For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Joel is using the idiom of an invading army to describe this plague of locusts. I think he's also using the locusts as a type of a coming military invasion. I personally believe that's what he's doing. He's using this local catastrophe of the locust as a springboard to describe a devastation that will occur, occur in the future. This is what we'll see unfold in the book. He goes on, lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the husband of your youth. In other words, don't trivialize these hard times that you've endured. Take heed. Grieve over your losses. Perhaps God wants to teach you a lesson. In other words, don't waste your sorrows. He says, the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. This plague was so horrific that it disrupted the temple worship that the daily offerings ceased. He says, the field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley... Because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Israel was barren and they were bombed. Not just the shrubs, but their joy had withered. Can you imagine living in the midst of such a plague? bugs slapping in the face, eating up everything in sight. You know, can you imagine what was happening to the morale of the people? This is why they turned to artificial stimulants. This is why they got drunk. They relied on Jack rather than Jesus. That's what happened. The Jews faced a crisis, but it was an opportunity to drink deeply from God, not numb themselves with alcohol. He says, "'Gird yourselves and lament, you priests, wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God.'" They need to come. They need to seek the Lord. Sackcloth was a coarse, rough material. As clothing, it would be like wearing sandpaper. A sackcloth shirt would not be very comfortable. And the exhortation here is to put on sackcloth. This meant to lay aside the creature comforts and the distractions of this world and get serious with God. Be prepared to mourn over your sin. Truly seek the Lord for his help. Joel cries out in verse 14, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. How do you respond when a crisis strikes in your life? Well, here Joel gives us three suggestions. First, he tells God's people to pull back from the crisis. Pull back. Give yourself some space. Get some objectivity. Call an assembly. In our context, go to church. Try to gain God's perspective on your situation. When you face the crisis, first, seek the Lord's face. Second, pull together. He says, gather the elders and your Christian friends. Call together the people of faith. Draw from their encouragement, their support, their prayers. In a crisis, seek help. This is not time to turn to the bottle. It's time to turn to a brother. And finally, pull apart from the world. Joel says, consecrate a fast. Cut off your normal intakes of food or entertainment or sports. Change your schedule to hear from God. Make him your sole priority for a time. This is still good suggestions for us. In a crisis, we should pull back. We should pull together. And we should pull apart from the world and seek the Lord. Verse 15. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. And here is the theme of the book of Joel. Five times he mentions the day of the Lord. It's a term used by the biblical writers to speak of future cataclysms. The expression denotes a time when God will intervene in human history, when God will bring about his own conclusion. History one day will truly become his story. God will judge the earth. He'll establish his kingdom. He'll bring order to man's madness. Joel uses the locust as a local example of what God will one day do on a global scale. Imagine Miss Donna's class, a class of third graders having recess back on the church lawn. The kids have been cooped up all day. They race out to the playground. They begin to run wild. Of course, Donna arrives just a tad later, and immediately she starts pulling things into order. She stops the bad behavior. She sets up some rules. She gets a game going. Well, what happens on our playground is a microcosm of God's plan for the ages. Today is the day of man. God, in essence, is letting mankind run wild. He's allowing us our freedom, and guess what? We're showing we can abuse that freedom, can't we? But soon, God will come out, and he will come out. And he's going to get a grip on things. At first, it's going to be ugly as he puts down revolt and sin and makes corrections. In the end, he's going to make all things beautiful. The day of the Lord will begin with the rapture of the church. It'll continue with the great tribulation and God's judgment on this world, followed by the second coming of Christ, and then finally, the Lord's thousand-year reign. The day of the Lord is coming. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, at creation, God said, the evening and the morning were the first day. Notice in God's plan, the nighttime precedes the daytime. The evening and the morning were the, were the first day. In other words, the sun goes down before a new day dawns. There is darkness before there's light. And this will be true of the day of the Lord. You see, the Jews looked forward to God's intervention for this great day of the Lord. They were aware of God's wonderful promises and they rightly believed that that day would be full of blessing and prosperity for Israel. But what they conveniently overlooked is that before the new day dawns, a nightfall of judgment will occur. In other words, their prosperity will be preceded by persecution and purification. And this is why Joel calls them now to repent and to put on their sackcloth and to cry out to the Lord. Verse 16, Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan, the herds of cattle are restless, because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. Again, he's describing what these locusts have done to the land, to the flocks, to the herds, to the pastures. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the open pastures. Chapter 2, Blow the Trumpet in Zion. Well, maybe it didn't sound quite like that. But blow the trumpet in Zion. Moses made two silver trumpets that were blown for various reasons. To break camp, to prepare for battle, and to gather the people to worship. Here judgment is coming. And so the trumpet gets blown. Also you'll remember in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. The great tribulation highlights seven trumpets. Seven judgments. And what are they called? Trumpet judgments. Seven trumpets blast out judgments on the earth. They too alert the Jews to break camp and flee to the wilderness. The sound, they sound the battle cry. And they called the Jews to gather together and turn back to God. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been Nor will there never be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Locust swarms had covered the land of Israel with a thick darkness. But according to Joel, they were illustrative of a coming people, an army that would also blanket the land in the very same way. In a sense, when we think about the prophecy of Joel, imagine the prophet wearing trifold glasses. They're called progressives. Got some on myself. Think of Joel wearing trifold glasses. He sees immediate, he sees a little further, and then he sees distance. In his own day, he was dealing with this plague of locusts. This was the immediate danger. 100 years into the future, the Assyrian army will invade the land of Israel. They will come from the north. We'll read about the northern army a little bit later. This was the intermediate vision. But thirdly, and we'll see it in the book, Joel also speaks of the battle that will end all battles, the battle that the Bible calls the Battle of Armageddon. It will occur at the end of the age, and all the armies of the world will surround Jerusalem. See, the book of Joel has all three scenarios in view. Now he goes on, he says, a fire devours before them, and before them, behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Again, in the immediate sense, he's depicting this plague of locusts. Before it, the landscape is green as a garden. In its rearview mirror, the ground is desert. It's nothing but scorched earth. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds, so they run. Again, Joel is using the locust to describe not just the current plague, but also a future dilemma, a future army that will invade. Remember, locusts have the face of a horse. In fact, the Italian term for locust means little horse, and they move fast like leaping stallions. He says, with a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Again, these invading locusts foreshadow people in battle array, a futuristic army that's destined to come against Israel at the end of the age. Perhaps Joel sees in this vision Black Hawk Hawk helicopters, like grasshoppers, paratroopers floating in like a swarm of locusts, modern artillery devastating a landscape. You can see how the two would correspond. Remember, too, that four types of locusts are mentioned in chapter 1. It's interesting that the first four judgments in the book of Revelation feature four horsemen. The white horse or the Antichrist, the red horse of war, the black horse of famine, and the pale horse of death. Also in Revelation, we see seven trumpets that sound out God's judgment. The fifth trumpet is a plague of locusts that rise up out of the bottomless pit, out of hell itself. And these are not ordinary locusts. Again, locusts are used as a type or as an illustration. Common locusts feed on vegetation, but these locusts are ordered not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing, but only those who do not have the seal of God in their forehead. We're also told in Revelation 9 verse 7, and the shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. This too is similar to Joel's descriptions. John sees an army of locust-like demons that harm those who aren't committed to God, who haven't received the mark of God in their forehead. This situation will become so bad that people will desire to commit suicide, but death takes a vacation. The situation in the prophet's day and his descriptions of it are both immediate problems but also descriptions of future events. Verse 6 tells us, "...before them the people writh in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column." Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. In other words, you can't destroy these locusts. You can't cut them down. You can't keep them out. Not only was that true of the locusts in Joel's day, but it also sounds like the demons in Revelation chapter 9. He says, The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon grow dark. And the stars diminish their brightness. Again, Joel is dealing with a current plague, but obviously his vision moves to the end of the age. Notice the parallels with Revelation. In Revelation, when the seventh bowl is poured, a colossal earthquake strikes. When the sixth seal is broken, the sky rolls up like a scroll. When the fourth trumpet blasts, a third of the sun, moon, and stars refuse to shine. We can only imagine the catastrophic phenomena that these plagues describe. Obviously, John and Joel agree that in the end, in the day of the Lord, Mother Nature will go nuts. In other words, Mother Nature will have a severe case of PMS. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Remember, this is what Jesus said about the end times, about the great tribulation. In Matthew 24, verse 22, he said, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, that is the Jews, those days will be shortened. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, so rend your heart and not your garments. I've seen people come to the altar, come weeping, come crying, but their tears were only crocodile tears. They weren't really sincere. You know, it's one thing to tear your garments, it's another thing to come to God with a broken heart. And Joel is saying, enough with the antics. God wants repentance, not just remorse. See, a person can be sorry they got caught. They can be sorry about the consequences of their sin and never really show a desire to change. God wants more than a show. He wants real sincerity. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent And leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. i got to admit, one of my flaws is a quick temper. i got a short fuse. Not proud of it, but I admit it. But you know, in contrast to that, God is slow to anger. God is just the opposite. He has great patience. He has enduring kindness. That's why he tells us to return to the Lord. For he's gracious and he's merciful, slow to anger. Turn to him and he'll turn to you. And then verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Normal activity should cease. The assembly should take precedent over nursing and over weddings. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Everyone should pray for God's deliverance. You see, a crisis becomes an opportunity when it snaps us to attention and calls us to cry out to God for his help. Well, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land. With his face toward the Eastern Sea and his back toward the Western Sea, his stench will come up and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. This northern army will be camped between the Western Sea or the Mediterranean and the Eastern Sea or the Sea of Galilee. It will be driven from the land of Israel by the hand of God and a stench will rise from its slaughter. This northern army probably refers to Assyria in the short run and to Israel's end-time enemies in the long run. Either the Russian coalition, spoken of by Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39, or the armies of the Antichrist, which we read about in Daniel 11. But both will get defeated. He says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. And when I read that, I can't help but to notice the contrast. The preceding verse, monstrous things, and now this verse, marvelous things. Monstrous things and marvelous things. Notice both come from the hand of God. Both come from God's hand. Both judgment and blessing comes from the hand of God. This is what we can't forget. Oh, we love his blessings. Blessings. But he's just as faithful to deliver his judgments. God is capable of both monstrous things and marvelous things. He says, Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, And he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Unlike Egypt to the south that drew its water from the Nile River, Israel lived dependent on the rains. And that means that whenever God wanted to wake them up to get their attention, he would withhold the rain. There are actually two rainy seasons in Israel. The former are autumn rains, and the latter or the spring rains. And here Joel promises that if the people repent, God will restore to them both rainy seasons, both the former and the latter rains. Former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, she once made the comment Imagine Moses led all of our people through the wilderness for 40 years and brought them to the only place in this area that has no oil. <laughs> But you know, God knew what he was doing. God was deliberate. God knew what he was doing. For the Lord wanted his people to trust in him, not in their oil, not in their river, not in their gold, but in him. And so he led them to a place perfectly designed for that. Verse 24 Once they come back to the Lord, the threshing floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. This oil is olive oil. In other words, when the rainy seasons return, it'll cause the ground to prosper again. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied And praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Put to the test? Yes. God's people will be put to the test. Put through the fire? Yep. They'll get put through the fire. But put to shame? Never. Never. God's will is to restore us. See, God has power to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Do you understand what a beautiful promise that is? What lust, what greed, what selfishness, what pride has gnawed at in your life? What sin has chewed up and spit out in your life? Did you know God can restore? God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. God can overcome the terrible consequences of our sin. God doesn't just forgive sin. He can restore and help us overcome the consequences of that sin. He promises to restore to us wasted years and untapped potentials and lost opportunities and neglected talents and squandered blessings. I hate to talk to, about to somebody in... in notice something in their life that God has put there, and they say, oh, that's past. My time for that's past. I can't go back there. Why can't you? God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He can recall some of those things that you thought were over for you. God can renew dreams and restore vision. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, lost years can never be restored, literally. Time once past is gone forever, but there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the unripened fruits over which you mourned. The fruits of wasted years may yet be yours. When Mickey Mantle came up with the New York Yankees, his manager Casey Stingle, he told a reporter, "This guy is going to be better than Joe DiMaggio and Babe Ruth." But you know, Mantle never realized his full potential. He never reached the heights that were predicted of him. In fact, he died an early death. And before he died, he held a moving press conference where he admitted to his late nights and his heavy drinking and how they had wasted his potential. In fact, tears came to Mickey Mantle's eyes when he confessed, one of the things I messed up besides baseball was being a father. I wasn't a good family man. Perhaps shortcomings with your family are some of your chief regrets. We've all made mistakes. We've all got regrets. Can God really restore the years that the worms have eaten? can he really do that for me? You bet he can. You bet he can. After Samson sinned and became a slave of his enemies, God restored to him his strength one last time. The Bible says he killed more of the enemy in his dying than in his living. After Job's terrible ordeal, you would think after all that Job suffered, nothing good would ever come to his life. But the last chapter of Job tells us that God restored to him double all that he had lost. After Peter's crushing denial of Jesus, can you imagine a a worse feeling? He went out and wept bitterly. Yet the Lord came to him by the Sea of Galilee and renewed his calling. Gave him a second chance. Oh, yes, the Lord can restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. Can God restore the damage that you've done to your marriage? Yes, he can. To your kids? You bet he can. Your career? Of course. Your witness? Absolutely. Yes, a dozen times yes and yes. Repent and trust God. He'll restore to you those wasted years, and he'll restore to you the toll that sin has taken. And here's how he does it, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. These are special verses. They're quoted often in the New Testament. In fact, this is what Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost when he gave his explanation of the miracle that had occurred in the upper room. He told the people in Acts chapter 2, verse 16, This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he quoted this scripture. Now, notice Peter refers to what the prophet spoke, not the when. Joel is speaking of the day of the Lord. He's speaking of the end of the age when the Jews will embrace Jesus and God will pour out his spirit on all Israel and on all people. But now, back at the day of Pentecost, when Peter quoted this, he wasn't talking about the when, he was talking about the what. On the day of Pentecost, the what of Joel's prophecy happened. Not the when, but the what. God poured out the same power and the same anointing on his church that he will one day in the end pour out on all Israel. You understand what went on? The what happened at Pentecost. We received the blessing that will later come upon the Jews. We received it at Pentecost, and we can now enjoy it in our lives today. What Joel was speaking of was a time yet future when this will happen to Israel. And the same truths of this blessing apply to us, regardless of gender or age, regardless of whether you're a servant or a maidservant, all who embrace Jesus, sons and daughters, old men and young men, God has promised to pour out the power of his Spirit upon us. As Paul said to the Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Prior to it happening in Israel, God wants to fill us, his church, with this unspeakable joy and this unquenchable boldness. And then in verse 30, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. This all happens at the end of the age when Jesus comes to institute his kingdom. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance as the Lord has said, among the remnant who the Lord calls. Do you recognize that verse? Whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul quotes Joel 2 verse 32 in Romans chapter 10, explaining how we Gentiles have entered into the family of God. Apparently the whosoever here really means whosoever, both Jews and Gentiles. Salvation is not limited to a few, to the Jews, but whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Chapter three. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Notice God takes an offense to that to dividing up the holy land, his land, the land he gave to the Jews. When Jesus returns, he will gather the Jews from the ends of the earth. He'll replant them into the land that he promised them. Then he'll judge the nations of the world in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Tradition identifies this valley as the gorge east of Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, which is between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. This is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The name Jehoshaphat means Yahweh was ju- has judged. This is what Jesus will do in that day. You remember in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus spoke of this judgment in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. He said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats. Remember the separation of the sheep and the goats. It's interesting the basis on which the separation occurs. Jesus said it. It was how they treated the least of these my brethren. And who were Jesus' brethren? The church, oh no. We're His bride, not his brethren. No, Jesus was born a Jew. Thus the Jews were His brethren, His brothers. Here's how the nations will ultimately be judged, by how they treated Israel, the Jews. This is what he says in our text. I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. See, not only does Jesus promise, is his promise confirmed here in the prophecy of Joel, but it hearkens all the way back to God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Remember what God told Abraham? I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And God will stay true to this to the very end. This is how he'll judge the nations. Jesus will judge the nations on how they treated the Jews. That means woe to the United States if we ever turn our backs on Israel. And then he says in verse 3, they have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. In other words, the nations have enslaved the Jews. Look at the horrors that have happened to the Jews over the centuries. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried it into your temples, my prized possessions. Also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. All these neighboring nations that had been guilty of mistreating the Jews will be ripe for judgment, and God will carry it out. He says, Proclaim this among the nations prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Hey, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. God is challenging the nations to come up against him. Imagine God, he's saying, go ahead and make my day. That's what he's doing. He's angry with the nations of the world. He's calling them together to the valley of Megiddo for the final battle. Notice verse 10. We're used to reading the words from Isaiah 2, verse 4. You remember Isaiah 2, verse 4? They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But see, this is after the coming of Jesus. This is after the final judgment of the nations. This is after God establishes his kingdom and ushers in his peace. At that time, the world will convert their instruments of war into implements of peace. In fact, this verse is actually engraved on a wall outside the United Nations building in New York City. But a better motto for the United Nations would be this verse in Joel, which says just the opposite. For the world is headed for just the opposite. God's plan is not Peace, his plan is war, then peace. Notice, notice what it says here. Joel tells them, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Just the opposite. Get ready for war. God's next plan is to bring judgment on the nations of this world. This is what Paul warns about in 1 Thessalonians 5 when men say peace and safety then sudden destruction comes upon them. When Jesus returns, we'll no longer need weapons, but until then, we need to keep our powder dry and a few bombs or two on standby just in case there are bad guys out there. Verse 12, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe, come go down, for the wine press is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Remember what the Apostle John said of Jesus in Revelation 19. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The Bible calls Jesus the Prince of Peace, and he is. Jesus will bring peace upon this earth, but only after he kills off all his enemies first. Jesus is coming as a mighty warrior with sword drawn. The blood he slays of his enemies has been splattered on his robes, down his thighs tatted, king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is coming as a warrior. Then he'll usher in a worldwide peace. God will crush the nations as grapes were told. Blood will flow like juice. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. See, we picture Jesus as the Lamb. But here we're told that he is a lion. That he roars from Zion. Notice the valley of Jehoshaphat is also called the valley of decision. I've heard it said, we make our decisions, then our decisions make us. And that's true. That will certainly be true in the final day. God will decide on us. In, the, in accordance with the decisions that we've made in our lives. C.S. Lewis tells us that when we die, there will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. That will not be the time for choosing It will be the time when we discover which side we had really chosen, whether we realized it or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no alien shall ever pass through her again. Since 70 AD, for the last 1,947 years, Jerusalem has been trampled by Gentile feet. Today, Muslim knees bow and pray on the Temple Mount. But when Jesus returns, Jerusalem and Zion will be liberated. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains will drip with new wine, The hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, and water from the valley of acacias. Ezekiel 47 describes the spring that bubbles up in the temple and becomes a mighty river flowing east toward the Dead Sea. The valley of acacia is northeast of the Dead Sea and apparently receives water from this river. The chapter closes. Egypt shall be a desolation. And Edom, a desolate wilderness, because of violence against the people of Judah. For they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. And there we have the book of Joel.